This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. A few years ago, um, there was a terrible, uh, um, I don't think it was a hostage shooting, it was in Dallas, Texas, and um, he had an armed gunman and he shot several members of the Dallas Police Department, killed several people, uh, wounded several people. And so the chief sent in a robot and to, it, it basically detonated the robot and killed the, the suspect so that they could, you know, save more officers' lives. Um, I was really conflicted about that because I thought, wow, when, when we have, and I think this is why we have to be careful, is because when we have this type of technology, like then, then that's the first thing we went to. We're like, okay, we're going to go blow this person up. We're going to go, you know, mm. he's, we're going to extinguish the threat in, in this way. And, you know, we, we're very quick. You might be very quick to do that rather than have like, you know, a, a, a negotiator, right? Somebody who could negotiate with this person and take them alive. And so I think that sometimes this, this ready access to technology um, can be problematic, um, particularly if we're going to use it for, for deadly situations. And um, where I usually, I think I tend to be on the, the side that um, we should be preserving, you know, the sanctity of life um, when we can. And so I think that having technology like that could, could sometimes make us more likely to, you know, just, just use that, jump to that as our first option. And I think that that could be, that could be dangerous. That could be, you know, kind of setting, setting us back. We're just gonna, you know, go to, go to robots um, uh, or machines um, every time uh, there's a tough situation. And I, and I just wonder how we're going to balance that, the sanctity, you know, preserving the sanctity of life. Kemi Chavis is a professor of law and director of the criminal justice program at Wake Forest University School of Law. We've all seen the movies that take place in some version of the future, right? Where law enforcement is dependent on artificial intelligence or some kind of sentient technology like Minority Report, or where robots are the new police like Total Recall or even Robocop. The thing is, the use of advanced data-driven technologies and even robotics in law enforcement and the justice system isn't too far-fetched. With so much pushback lately about the way the law is handled all around the world, people now wonder if technology may be the answer to a more just justice system. But as always, things are not as simple as they seem. My name is Arvind Yuvaraj and this is Futurescapes, an audio time capsule that's not just a prediction of the world to come, but a record of the times that we are in now, with advanced concepts and technologies that could one day change everything. One of the trends that people are calling for in the United States um, are, you know, officers having less interaction with citizens in their, you know, their their everyday lives. Like mm-hmm. every time, every every call for help does not require an armed first responder. So, do I think that we could maybe have like robots doing traffic enforcement? I hope so because I think that that would be a way that you know our tra- the traffic laws are important and we can enforce them. So, you know, I think for certain functions, 
we could definitely have uh, robots. I would I would really like to see, you know, for certain functions, let, let's have uh, robots do it. But it would also take the fear. Um, so many people have just such a fear of being stopped um, in, in that manner. Based on what's happening today, uh, we are seeing like pockets of the population all over the world, like questioning the way law enforcement works, the way the justice system works. What do you think will be the biggest changes made to all of that in 2031? Like this can be based purely in the States or even on a global scale? Well, I think that, you know, I can speak from my experience in the United States. We have certainly uh, faced a reckoning over the past year with the death of George Floyd um, and then uh, Breonna Taylor as well. But why those deaths um, at the hands of police were so significant is because these are actually uh, issues that we've been dealing with, uh, quite frankly, for for decades, uh, for centuries even, uh, some might say, when, when you think about how African-Americans, how blacks in this country have been treated uh, by law enforcement. Um, it's really important to understand the historical origins of the tensions, the racial tensions that we have between police and communities of color, because by understanding those origins, you can understand exactly how difficult it is to make any transformative change. Prior to uh, the, the Civil War, there were actually slave patrols, uh, residents, of communities would band together to protect their property. And this this property, um, it was human beings. And so the slave patrols, and they really regulated the movements of enslaved people as well as free blacks, asking them for their, you know, papers and, and that kind of thing. And it's very analogous to kind of what we see today with stop and frisk and how people can just be walking on the street and officers just stop them, frisk them and try to get weapons, um, you know, from them, weapons or contraband. They're, they're racially profiling them mm-hmm. in very much the same way. Um, after the Civil War, during um, an era in our country uh, we call Reconstruction, uh, there were mass lynchings um, of, of black people. And actually today we just commemorated the 100th uh, anniversary of the Tulsa massacre, where you actually had um, – you know, law enforcement would participate in in lynchings of of blacks across the country, or even if they didn't actively participate, they would certainly look the other way. Mm-hmm. And then we go to the civil rights movement, and during the civil rights movement, these um, officers were in were in charge of enforcing unjust laws, and so you'd have protesters who were protesting unjust laws and, and racial segregation, and uh, you'd have uh, uniformed officers beating uh, people uh, using fire hoses and that kind of thing. And then we go all the way through the 70s and 80s with the, quote, war on drugs. And, um, and we can really see um, the difference between uh, how crack cocaine and those who, you know, maybe possessed um, crack cocaine uh, were, or uh, that form of cocaine were, were treated, a hundred to one disparity. If you had powder cocaine, um, you might get, um, you know, one sentence, but if it was crack cocaine, which was cheaper and, and used in many communities of color, the penalties were very severe. So I give all of that history to say that it's the, 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 Racial tensions are so deep that we have a long way to go. So even though 10 years seems like a long time, I think that in the, I'm, I, I'm hopeful that we'll make some changes, but I think it's going to be slow and incremental. And I think the changes that we're going to see, we're already seeing 
changes in use of force. Um, and I think that we will see changes in terms of the authority that officers have to, uh, to intervene in certain situations. So to answer your question, <laughs> I think <laughs> that we have a very uh, long history of racial tension in our, in our country. Our um, police system is, it's inextricably uh, linked to the, the racism in our country, and that I do think we're going to see some incremental changes. And I think a lot of those changes will relate to how we police communities of color. So I'm not sure if my uh, point of view makes sense, uh, but I've always seen human bias as the biggest weakness in any legal system. So when there's a misuse of power, um, it's always because of uh, bias and racism, uh, personal vendettas and emotions from the people on top. Won't AI solve all of that, like in a way, because, you know, you'd have like a machine that operates uh, purely on data instead of, quote unquote, human errors. So why not ask the machine to pass judgment instead? Yeah, I mean, I think that that is that's that's definitely um, a logical argument, except for the fact that, you know, we are feeding data, you know, into uh, an, al- an algorithm, right? Mm-hmm. We are feeding data into a system um, and we expect to get, and if the underlying data is is itself, um, you know, collected um, in, a, in a biased way. And so let me, let me give you an example of how that might happen. Um, when we're thinking about, um, um, you know, arrests or crimes that are reported, right? Um, and if you're going to base trends uh, off of, metrics like that, um, you know, you have to be sure that you are getting, that you're getting uh, the correct data. And uh, unfortunately, you know, um, because of racial profiling in, in our country, you have, you know, African-Americans, uh, Blacks, actually Blacks and Latinos uh, are stopped at much higher rates than whites. So it may look like that they are you know, committing more crime, that they have disproportionate contacts with law enforcement, but that may not have anything to do with uh, what those folks are doing. It, it may have to do with the fact that they're being targeted and, and how those crimes are, you know, get reported. Who you arrest. In our, in our country, you have, uh, officers have a great deal of discretion who to um, arrest and who not to arrest. So, and, and the same thing with prosecutors, who to prosecute and who not to prosecute. We really don't um, inquire into the subjective motivations. So if you have, you know, again, human error, human bias that's um, creating these arrest records, uh, creating like, you know, who's charged with certain crimes, um, all of that uh, kind of ties back to some type of human human uh, interaction in the beginning. So uh, we, and, and this is not to say, I mean, you know, there, there are people much smarter than me that can, can, I'm sure figure out um, ways to alleviate that bias, but it's just something that we need to be aware of when we are, when we're suggesting uh, these technologies. Can I ask you something that's a bit more um, subjective, you know, like, um, and very personal, I guess. So what is your take on that, by the way? Are you comfortable with that? Well, so um, I, I'm I am comfortable in that. I think you know we can we can learn a lot. We can do you can do more right with less manpower, right? You don't need hmm. um, five officers sitting on the side of of the road, um, 
you know, collecting license plate information or when we're thinking about like um, facial recognition. Right. And we do need to be more efficient, but it's very important that we can't forget the unreliability sometimes, right, of of certain technologies. So uh, facial rec- recognition is another technology that could, you know, could be very useful um, in theory, but uh, we have seen several instances in the United States of false identification based on facial recognition. The the thing is, is that these technologies are not foolproof, right? Um, and uh, again, when uh, particularly around facial recognition, it does not recognize um, it, it, there, some of the uh, systems have problems recognizing or properly identifying people of color. And um, there are at least th- two or three instances that I know of recently where people have been misidentified. And so the stakes are just too high, you know, to put someone's liberty at stake um, when there could be a mistake. Now, we also know that human beings make um, mistakes and maybe, and, and, quite possibly make mistakes at a much higher rate. So, um, you know, again, at some point um, when we're, when we're thinking about implementing these technologies, are we, are we making an, you know, an incremental improvement? Uh, I just, um, you know, and your, your question was how comfortable am I with it? Um, I think that we, we need to continue to, um, to, to work on and to, and to develop and to improve these technologies because they can be useful and they can be useful because you're not putting two people in direct contact, right? Like you're not, it doesn't, you don't, an officer doesn't have to uh, stop a car and pull someone out of the car to get information um, like they, they once had to. And we know that those interactions can be deadly. I am just kind of sounding a, you know, a warning, a sign of, okay, but if we do this, we still have to realize that, um, that they're not foolproof. And so another way to, to do that is just make, maybe have some type of corroborating evidence. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so, okay. So facial recognition, you know, matched this person, like, is there, and so maybe it gives us a lead, maybe it gives us a leg up, but maybe it, it shouldn't be something that we rely on, uh, 100% in order to take someone's liberty away. I mean, like a part of me thinks that the sharing of uh, data on a global scale could actually lower crime and and criminal activity. Um, There's so much intelligence to tap into, but the cynical side of me is afraid of where that data is being stored and who's storing that data, you know, and and the fear of an impending uh, surveillance state. Yes, yes. You know, um, but again, you know, it's like, but if you have all this data and then you're not able to use it, I know we had um, a few years ago a terrorist attack in um, San San Bernardino, um, California, mm-hmm. and they they were very the authorities were really trying to get um, Apple, I think it was Apple, to um, unlock the phone of you know one of the, the suspects, and the company you know would would not would not do it, and um, and so you know the government had to I think hire their own people to try to crack the code, or <laughs> and it took longer and and that kind of thing, and so I think that there you know could, and, and we have to be mindful of that because we have to be mindful of 
of of of privacy and privacy rights. But I think there's a bit of balancing we can do. You know, that was a very serious, dangerous um, uh, attack, and so maybe it might be warranted to give up you know, some of the the privacy, some of the information when you're trying to solve a crime like that. But if it's some, you know, lower level, very, very small infraction, we would say, no, no, we're just, we're, we're not going to, um, to, to do that. On the flip side of that, what are you excited about when it comes to the way law is evolving? Like what kinds of reforms or changes are you seeing happen today that gives you hope for the future? Yes. Well, what what I'm hopeful about is that because we do have um, AI and machine learning and, um, and, and, and we do have the ability to collect large amounts of information that can be studied um, in an appropriate manner. And who's going to study this? Are we going to have, you know, researchers um, and people to uh, study the, the outcomes? And I think that there could be um, a, a lot of, of, of things that we could learn. Uh, one thing, and this is not really uh, related to machine learning or AI, but for example, just, you know, having uh, a body, uh, police body worn cameras that just by having that technology available and outfitting, you know, as many officers as possible as you can, law enforcement can be helped, uh, by that, um, Everyday people can be helped by having an objective depiction of you know how an officer treated them, but I think that we could use that information for for training purposes. But uh, there's one other thing um, I wanted to 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 say, and you know when we think about. Um, if you were to ask me, like, what are some of of the benefits and what are some of the disadvantages? Uh, I am very, you know, when you think about like predictive policing, right, mm-hmm. um, and and really being able to use resources efficiently. But what worries me about that is that I wouldn't want there to be an over reliance uh, on the technology because um, there is still. Uh, law enforcement in our in our communities in, in the United States, um, it's really hard to solve crimes sometimes without the cooperation of those in the community, and it's also very important to have the trust of those uh, members of of the community. Um, you know, just a, a good working relationship. And so if we're just using technology, technology all the time, and we're still not making those human connections, um, I think that, that could be that could be detrimental. But the, the real truth of it uh, is, is that because of some of the other uh, underlying issues, and you know, I mentioned the, 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 the racial history, uh, we haven't been so good with those relationships in the first place. So um, I think the technology really does provide us with a, a good bridge. And, um, and, and I would like to see personally less contact between police officers and citizens in their everyday lives. Do you think there'll ever be a time when computers and algorithms are allowed to create laws, not just enforce laws, you know, uh, but to determine rules and regulations based purely on demographics, on social systems, and data that's gathered from the population? That's uh, that's that's really interesting. I think that uh, yes, yeah, certainly, I think that hmm. um, that it could be 
that it can happen, you know, where something's suggested, but, uh, I don't know. Again, I, I still would want to, I, I think that what's great about particularly, you know, the United States is that we can debate and there's, there's, there are usually, um, two sides, not necessarily a right and a wrong, but there are many different ways um, of doing things and you can kind of come to a compromise. So uh, I would, I, I think it's, it's great to have um, evidence-based policies. Uh, and so to the extent that AI or machine learning could give us the evidence to say, you know, if, if you do this and if you do it in this way, then you will have this result. I think that that would be great for for policymakers to have access and to utilize that information. But I think that we have, we place such a premium uh, on being able to, uh, to discuss uh, and debate policy um, and make, you know, nuanced changes um, that I, I don't know that if that, if that would ever fully uh, come to, to fruition uh, here and the other thing is that again, you, you really have to be careful of of unintended consequences. Like, what do you you know if you do this, can you really anticipate um, the the power dynamics and and what may happen kind of downstream in some of these um, of some of these things? And so we're very concerned about that here. So I think that that's probably you know one of the most important messages when I think about. Um, the use of technology, machine learning, AI, is that um, there are some wonderful possibilities, but we must, we must be uh, conscious of the unintended consequences. And another way that that this happens, you know, a lot, again, a lot of people say, well, if we can take the bias out if we use these machines. It's like, but, you know, do the, the, do the communities, do underprivileged or underserved communities, do, have they really consented to being, you know, monitored or policed in this way? And, and an, an example of where that didn't happen, there was an aerial surveillance program in the city of Baltimore a few years ago. Mm-hmm. And it was um, uh, there. There was just a drone um, flying, or a plane flying over the city, collecting all kinds of, of information, information and images. And if there was a crime, they could, you know, pull up this uh, footage and and figure out, you know, maybe collect some information uh, from it. But there was a lot of data collected, a lot of images uh, collected. And the community in the beginning had no idea that this was going on. So that just strikes me as, you know, not not very transparent. And, you know, it could be that, okay, the community, um, if the community was aware that this was happening and, you know, there was some type of, of consent to, you know, well, we've, we've got a violent crime problem and we've we're at the end of our rope let's just try um this and so that we can solve some of some of these crimes people might say okay let's do that but to not know that it was happening and for all of the information to be collected you know it did not sit well uh, with the community so i think when we are implementing these new technologies we have to do so with transparency integrity and we have to make sure that uh, the community consents. And so in order for them to consent, uh, they need to be informed and educated about what's happening, about what's being used. What would be an ideal future for you 
personally because you're seeing like what's happening now um the 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 weaknesses of the justice system are being called into question um and that's the sign of a good democracy right that that's how it has to work and that makes me think that there's room to grow and there's room to uh, improve so what is an ideal 2031 in your opinion in an ideal 2031 i think that it, it would be a much more uh, equitable uh, criminal justice system equitable and and less punitive i think that we would have we would have you know quite frankly there's just less crimes they're not um, there's some things that are infractions and that we don't want people in society to do but we don't need to punish them through our through a criminal justice system we don't need to put people uh, in jail and so um, I think if we start out with reframing or reimagining our criminal justice system in that way I think that that helps us reimagine what lot how what law enforcement could be. I think um, ideally uh, in 2031 in the United States, we'd have a lot less um, police officers that are doing things like traffic enforcement or drug interdiction. And we would have a smaller, more um, educated, more trained elite force of, of police officers who could um, you know, in- investigate and solve uh, violent crimes. Machine learning and AI and some of these other technologies that we've talked about will play a role in that because that will uh, you know, allow police departments to use their resources, allocate their resources differently. If I'm having a, a problem with a problem with speeding or something like that, or needing to um, find, um, you know, a stolen car or something, you know, something of this sort, then I can use technology uh, in in that way um, without putting a police officer in danger, without endangering, you know, um, a resident who, you know, the police officer is scared of them because of the color of their skin. So that's what I think uh, in 20, in 2031. You can follow Cami Chavis on Twitter at Prof Cami Chavis. Remember to follow Futurescapes wherever you're streaming this from so that you don't miss out on upcoming episodes. We will be talking about space exploration, uh, cities of the future, and even deepfake. For now, here's a clip of a couple of kids from the 1960s predicting what the year 2000 will be like. This has been Arvind Yuvaraj on Futurescapes, BFM 89.9. I don't think there is going to be atomic warfare, but I think there is going to be all this automation. People are going to be out of work and a great population. I think something has to be done about it. If I wasn't a biologist, that's what I'd like to do, um, to do something about the the, uh, population problem, try and and sort of um, temper it somehow. I don't know how. Well, in the year 2000, um, I think I'll probably be the spaceship to the moon dictating robots to robots, or else I may be, I don't know, having a, in charge of a robot court, judging some robots, or if something's gone wrong with their nuclear bombs, I may be sort of coming back from hunting in a cave. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.